Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law 360, and I'm excited to say that joining me this week is guest host Amber McKinney. Amber's also our executive producer of The Term, and when she's not helping us on this podcast, you can find her as co-host of our sister podcast, Pro Se, and she's also the managing editor of Law 360's Employment Authority. Amber, welcome to the show. Jimmy, I love it when you allow me to dive bomb in here and talk about my favorite things, the Supreme Court. But also, glad you mentioned that I oversee our our Employment Authority division at Law360 because I want to get right into employment law. It's a perfect week for me to be on the show. That's right. There were uh, kind of a set of opinions that were announced on Wednesday, three in total. Among them was this really interesting employment decision that you're going to talk us through. Um, that brings the total number of like written decisions this term to, to only four, uh, even though we are already in late February and the justices have quite a bit of work to kind of dig themselves out of, for sure. I mean, Jimmy, they're on fire again. Only four. Um, I feel like we talk about this year to year where... I don't know if I just black out between the Supreme Court terms or what happens to me, but I'm always shocked with how slow they get going in some of these terms. So uh, another another slow start, but the employment case is exciting. Yeah. Why don't you give us the, the basic rundown? What's the top line of the courts holding in this case? Okay. So the court ruled on Wednesday in a 6-3 ruling that high earning professionals can only be overtime exempt if they're paid on a salary basis. That's a ruling that upholds a key provision of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Okay, so I understand the Fair Labor Standards Act is kind of this New Deal era legislation that, you know, obviously entitles certain employees to to overtime pay. But give me the facts here. Who is this high earning professional and how did this case get to the Supreme Court? Well, it's going to make us all want to be oil rig workers. So let's get into (laughs) it. Um, The case is about an energy company called Helix Energy Solutions Group. And the court found that they violated federal labor law by classifying an oil rig worker as an overtime exempt executive, but doling out his six figure pay as a day rate instead of on a salary basis. Oil rig workers often work with, I think they call them hitches. So that's 28 consecutive 12 hour days. In this case, the worker was paid almost $1,000 a day, but he didn't get any overtime, even though he routinely worked 84 hours a week. So why is this distinction between salaried pay and day rates important for purposes of, you know, the Fair Labor Standards Act? At the risk of getting pretty wonky here, um, it's the interplay of how some of these exemptions work, and we got a few things that they had to parse through. I'm going to try to keep this pretty simple, though, because I think the crux of it really does come down to, like, is that a salary? So the company said he was exempt from overtime under federal law because he qualifies as, quote, an executive, administrative, or professional employee. Under that exemption, if a worker performs specific duties, is paid on a salary basis, and that salary is high enough, they don't get overtime pay. Salary under these regulations is defined as guaranteed weekly amount that doesn't fluctuate based on quality or quantity of the work performed. So that's what salary means. Alternatively, at play here is a second rule that says highly compensated employees are exempt from overtime as long as they perform at least one job duty that qualifies as an executive, administrative, or professional. And if they earn over roughly $100,000 a year, including, and this part's important, at least $455 per week paid on a salary or fee basis. 
Basically, what happened here with that interplay of those those exemptions is that Helix said that because the workers' day rate was more than $455, his pay structure met the literal definition of that exemption provision. However, the justices who joined the majority opinion firmly disagreed. They were clear in determining that a high daily pay rate can't be considered a salary. Day rates literally accrue day by day for all the days you work. And a true salary, according to Justice Kagan, who wrote from the majority, is, and this is a quote from the opinion, a steady stream of pay which the employer cannot much vary and the employee may thus rely on week after week. That's that's really interesting and, and definitely good news for the oil rig workers out there that, that work in these kind of hitch pay structures. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of a joke to say, like, yeah, look at those oil rig workers making all this money. But this has implications for any number of industries. And one that I think is pretty interesting, given that we're in this endemic stage of the pandemic, is that this would also potentially apply to some nurses out there who may be highly compensated, but may also be paid a day rate. That's really interesting. And so what are some other takeaways from the ruling? And I understand that there was a dissent as well. Yeah, there's a couple of dissents. One is more procedural, so we'll kind of leave that to the side. But what I want to talk about at least a little um, is Justice Kavanaugh's dissent, who said the FLSA's text focuses on a worker's job functions, not the amount or how often the worker's paid to define that exempt status. And basically, that the job functions should be how the case is decided, at least according to Kavanaugh. In terms of takeaways, Jimmy, a couple of couple of things. First, you know, I can't help but put on my um, employment law hat and want to say some things to the employers out there. And it's this. Um, just remember that high pay isn't the only determinant for overtime exempt status. I think just on a visceral level, if especially for lay people or maybe employers who haven't really thought this through or consulted with their counsel about it, you really think of overtime pay accruing for people who are maybe service workers making minimum wage, things like that. But you know, just the amount you are paying someone isn't enough to say that they don't deserve overtime. So if you want to have someone say overtime exempt, employers, you got to make sure you are paying them with a system that supports that exemption. So an actual salary is defined under the statute. The other thing I wanted to get into with you, Jimmy, that I think you'll like talking about a bit, our own Daniela Porat on the Employment Authority team talked to attorneys about the ruling And they told her that dissent from Kavanaugh hints at a potential legal fight over whether the Department of Labor's salary regulations go beyond the FLSA's statutory authority. Kavanaugh and his dissent questioned whether DOL's salary regulations, which he in fact called dubious, would survive if there were challenges inconsistent with the FLSA's characterization of who constitutes an overtime-exempt executive. If that sounds familiar to you, Jimmy, you know... There is a lot of general skepticism on this bench about overly broad executive branch power. That's certainly been the case uh, uh, on this recent court. I mean, it's a theme that you're seeing every term when it comes to the big administrative law decisions. Uh, You don't need to look much farther than last term's decision, basically uh, telling the EPA that they did not have the authority under the Clean Air Act to enact these or or promulgate these broad regulations aimed at curbing greenhouse gas emissions, given that, you know, that wasn't necessarily a very 
uh, a widely known problem at the time that the Clean Air Act was announced. So yes, this court is highly skeptical of uh, overly broad claims of executive authority, and Justice Kavanaugh is definitely one of the the leaders of those skeptics on this current yeah, bench. Definitely when we got that EPA ruling last year, I think a lot of the speculation was how many other agencies and departments are going to face some pushback under the same rationale. And people did throw out the Department of Labor as a potential additional target for that kind of scrutiny. Looks like we may have in the future something set up here that does just that. Very interesting. So maybe not the end of the story for the oil rig workers out there or the <laughs> nurses, I suppose. Um, so yeah, that, that's a that's a great rundown of the one of the big decisions this week. Um, I think it's I think we should probably turn to the the big oral arguments that's on everybody's I think mind, we right? Should yeah. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the court heard appeals stemming from lawsuits filed against Google, Twitter, Facebook. Can't really get bigger. The plaintiffs in both cases are the surviving family members of terror victims that claim these giant platforms pushed extremist content that led to deadly terror attacks in Paris and Istanbul. The cases deal with slightly different issues, but at the core, they both center around the legal exposure of these big tech companies with billions of users. Jimmy, I'm excited to talk to you about this today because you sat through some really long arguments on both of these days, and I want to hear about exactly what happened and what it was like to be there in person. Um, it was, as you say, very long, and by the end of it, I was certainly ready for lunch on both days, but um, <laughs> in any event, no, I, I, I would say it, it was really interesting because, you know, being at the Supreme Court for a big case of the term, you'll usually see like throngs of protesters outside or, you know, lots of speakers getting up. Um, you didn't see pretty much any of that for either case um, on Tuesday and Wednesday, despite the fact that these are cases that could potentially, depending on how the justices rule, affect the way everyday Americans interact with, you know, these giant social media platforms, but also other sites on the internet. So they're very significant cases. Jimmy, all the protests must have been online. That's yeah. what these cases are. That's where the protests were. But People like rabidly tweeting at, uh, you know, SCOTUS it, blog, confusing them with the actual <laughs> Supreme Court. <laughs> that happens every year. Um, it is interesting, though, that these are sort of an intersection of, you know, what's going on online. And you see lots of splashy headlines about, is this going to kill the internet? Um, but also, this is rooted in some terror attacks. So can we start with maybe the first one and you sort of explain how how that all came to be in the court? Yeah. So let's start with Wednesday's case, because I think that will kind of contextualize things for us a little bit. And as you say, this is a case that comes from uh, plaintiffs who are the surviving U.S. relatives of a Jordanian national that was killed in a ISIS shooting at a nightclub in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, and basically what they alleged in their complaint was that these social media companies basically knew that ISIS uh, was you know, taking advantage of these platforms to recruit, to communicate, and generally, you know, advance their cause of terror um, and the, you know, the the murdering of innocent people. Now, long story short, 
you know, it was dismissed by the district court and on appeal at the Ninth Circuit, the, the Ninth Circuit decided to bring back the plaintiff's claims um, that these companies were aiding and abetting uh, terrorist activity under uh, the Anti-Terrorism Act, which as amended recently allows, you know, civilians to bring these types of civil lawsuits to hold any, you know, companies or individuals that are found to have provided this kind of substantial assistance accountable in federal court. So what we heard on Wednesday was Twitter's appeal of that Ninth Circuit ruling to the Supreme Court arguing that they should not be held liable um, under for, for any kind of aiding and abetting under this law, the Anti-Terrorism Act. Well, Jimmy, I've watched plenty of Law and & Order. And so when you hear aiding and abetting, you really think like, really affirmative actions, that they are um, intending to further whatever crime is being committed. That's not exactly what's happening here, though, right? Can you explain what the allegation is specifically? Yeah, no. I mean, the plaintiffs aren't claiming that like Jack Dorsey or face, or uh, you know Mark Zuckerberg was like aware of specific posts that were you know planning the attack on uh, the the Reina nightclub in 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 Istanbul, which killed thirty nine people. Rather, the claim is that you know it was very well established at the time that ISIS was using these platforms. Um, there was extensive media coverage of of this by you know various uh, journalism outlets there were there were congressional hearings there were statements by federal officials basically everybody knew including twitter facebook and google that isis were taking full advantage of you know just like the rest of the millions and billions of users that use them that you know these these were very helpful platforms and that you know therefore they either knew you know, them being Twitter, Google, or, or Facebook, or were willfully blind to the extensive use of the platforms by ISIS, and that, in essence, they were effectively giving the infrastructure that was needed to plan out these attacks and, you know, further advance their causes as a terrorist organization, thus, you know, in their eyes, actually aiding and abetting um, this organization. Um, so, Twitter goes to the Supreme Court on Wednesday, and its attorney, uh, Seth Waxman of Wilmer Hale, a very experienced Supreme Court lawyer, former U.S. Solicitor General, he basically makes a, a pretty straightforward argument. He says throughout the hearing that, you know, a social media company's failure to do more, is the phrase he uses, to get rid of this content, quote, does not amount to the knowing provision of substantial assistance to a specific terrorist attack. So, Waxman at bottom is making the argument that, you know, these companies need to be aware of like specific users posting specific posts that plan the actual attack that ends up injuring the plaintiff in this, you know, lawsuit. It's not enough, he says, that, you know, Twitter um, is generally aware. And I guess I should make a note here that for kind of reasons that are dealing with the complicated, like, uh, litigation backstory here. Twitter is the like the primary respondent in this or the primary appellant in the Supreme Court. Um, but in any event, Twitter um, is saying it's not enough that we knew generally because of some congressional hearings um, that there were some ISIS accounts out there among our millions and millions of users. We had to be aware that there were specific users using like making specific posts about this rain and nightclub shooting in particular. That's the argument that he was making to the Supreme Court. 
How did that go over with the bench, Jimmy? Um, did they seem receptive to that argument? So with a few exceptions, I would say it went over pretty well with the bench. The, the, the Supreme Court was generally skeptical of the like the, the, the plaintiff's theory of liability here, and they were pretty receptive to Twitter's position that, you know, like they should be held liable uh, simply because there were some ISIS users out there on their platform for any terrorist attack that that happens. There was a degree of uh, like concern there that, you know, th- this could basically result in a tidal wave of lawsuits um, anytime there's a terrorist attack simply because at some point, uh, you know, a member of ISIS used the platform to communicate with another or, or do some type of recruiting. Um, and, you know, I would say that Justice Neil Gorsuch in particular was was kind of uh, describing the plaintiff's theory as a little bit too attenuated to actually claim uh, state a claim of aiding and abetting. He kind of likened their you know their their position in the case to like uh, the butterfly effect, where and he gets bad, a little bit bad movie, but good reference here. <laughs> good reference. Um, he basically says like, well, you know, everything is connected to everything else, and he's kind of suggesting that there needs to be a little bit more specific direct connection. You know, there's no there's no direct allegation, um, as far as I'm aware, in this case that like the perpetrators were using Twitter to plan uh, specifically this attack on the Raina nightclub. And he's suggesting that maybe there needs to be a little bit more connection, as I said. But, you know, on the other hand, you had someone like Justice Kagan, who was a little bit concerned that the Supreme Court could uh, kind of allow businesses, these widely available businesses, to just like freely associate with known terrorists as long as they don't actually provide like the material assistance needed for the planning of a specific attack. So she kind of floats the example of like Osama bin Laden, like walking into a bank and asking to open an account. And she's of course suggesting that that of course, that the bank in that scenario could of course be found liable for providing its banking services or whatever services it's needed in that situation. I mean, striking uh, hypothetical, which, you know, love to see those in the court. But how what, what was the reaction to her suggesting that? I mean, was there any pushback from um, the people arguing the case? I think that's something that the Supreme Court was struggling with, which is to say, you know, perhaps Twitter shouldn't be liable in this specific instance, um, but maybe another business with some degree of heightened knowledge about the actual terrorist activity here or the terrorist organization um, should be found liable. And in fact, you saw Justice Amy Coney Barrett throughout the hearing, like almost proposing a holding in the case where she would suggest that, you know, like a, a, a business that was, you know, widely available to the general public can't be held liable absent some kind of specific knowledge of the actual, you know, uh, Either the 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 the, the consumer um, in this case ISIS or the the actual attack itself. So they're trying to find a line here, and you saw the plaintiff's lawyer, um, law professor Eric Schnapper, really kind of seizing on this by saying, like, you know, by by trying to connect this so much to the actual terror attack itself, he's suggesting that that's limiting a lot of the liability that Congress was intending to establish for these organizations that just generally aid and abet an organization like ISIS. And he he points out that the actual terrorist attacks themselves are a small part of what these organizations actually do. He says, 
Running terrorist organizations is very expensive. It involves fundraising. There are lots of salaries. There's, I mean, I'm not sure if that's a day rate or a, you know, an actual salary <laughs> itself. But he says there's travel, there's bribery, there's forging documents. That's why it's so important that the court hold that the entire enterprise being aided matters. That is really interesting. And, and, Finding a line between complete liability and no liability does seem extremely murky here. Um, so even in this example about being worried about insulating every company that does business with Osama bin Laden and and people of that nature, there is, however, a big elephant in the room we haven't gotten to yet. And I want to turn to that a bit. Um, if the plaintiffs win in that case, Companies can still claim immunity under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. That law shields social media platforms from basically everything at this point. So, Jimmy, can we get into that, which I think plays into the second set of arguments you listened to? Yes. I mean, you referred to the kind of screaming headlines this week. I think I probably had one myself about the Supreme <laughs> Court being on the edge of like destroying or breaking the Internet as we know it. And that is what those news stories are talking about primarily. It's this case that was argued on Tuesday, Gonzalez v. Google, and it involves the 1996 law that you just mentioned, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has been interpreted over the past several decades to effectively shield um, these internet companies uh, from liability over third-party content, that is, content or posts posted by users. Now, this is a law that was kind of enacted at the dawn of the internet era, and it's basically been described as having had a huge impact on the explosion of the now multi-billion dollar internet economy over the last several decades, given that these companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter have essentially been shielded from these lawsuits um, over their kind of the organizational structure of their businesses and have been allowed to grow at an exponential rate with the millions and now billions of users that they have. So yes, this has been the first time on Tuesday when the Supreme Court actually kind of got in a room and debated just what the scope of Section 230 should be. Jimmy, that's so interesting. What should the scope be? Because when it was originally <laughs> put in place, the internet was so different. It was uh, just, just at the beginning. And these platforms were behaving very differently back then as well. So I think we have a lot to kind of unpack here. Can we start with something really basic, though? What's the exact question at issue in Gonzalez versus Google? Yes. So that's a good place to start. The, 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 the question presented in Gonzalez v. Google is whether Section 230 shields a social media company that uses recommendation-based algorithms to actually promote extremist content. So at issue in this case is whether YouTube, which is owned by Google, should be held liable for algorithms that you know, shared or suggested ISIS videos to users based on their user data in a way that helped the organization recruit new members, radicalize would-be terrorists, ultimately leading to this deadly terrorist attack um, in 2015 on Paris that killed a woman who was the relative of the plaintiffs in this case. And so you're absolutely right that this is a law that was passed kind of 
you know, before algorithms became as ubiquitous as they are today in, in the context of just third-party content that was uploaded to these internet these these internet platforms well you know now you have the advanced kind of dynamic where the companies are you know baked into their source code are these artificial intelligence systems that you know are based that that can actually put content in front of users based on their own um you know millions of pieces of individualized data so that they can get these highly targeted highly tailored internet user experiences. And the question is whether Section 230 should also cover those types of systems. Jimmy, this is the exact kind of thing I love talking about where laws are written at a time when there's one reality on the ground, but technology moves far faster than our legislative branch and our judicial system. So we're left with a bit of a mess here. I know we're talking broadly about how this relates to something very impactful, which is, you know, terrorist activity and litigation around that. But this is way broader than that, right? I mean, all the screaming headlines we've been talking about just talked about how this could kill the internet ecosystem as we know it writ large. So how how much hyperbole is there, Jimmy? How much of that is real? Yeah, I mean, it's... I- it, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I'd certainly say that that might be stating it a little bit too extremely. Um, but at the same time, you're absolutely right that this goes way beyond terror litigation. If the Supreme Court were to scale back Section 230 in any conceivable way, there would inevitably be additional litigation brought over all types of content that appears on these sites. I mean, you can just imagine some off the top of your head, maybe it's a, a defamatory deep fake um, that's that that you know puts someone in a compromising position where they suddenly feel like their reputation has been damaged, and that you know maybe a company like YouTube has been actively promoting this. Or you could imagine a scenario where there's litigation over things like screen addiction in young adults, things that you know that strike at the kind of advanced. Uh, artificial intelligence systems, these 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 computer algorithms that are now ubiquitous across all these web platforms, and so you're absolutely right that terror litigation is just one small part of the immunity that uh, would suddenly fall should the court decide to scale back on Section 230, which for the last you know two plus decades has provided this incredibly broad protection for companies like Google and for Twitter and for Facebook. So how did the justices react to that? They're not necessarily known for their tech savvy. So this does seem like a tricky one from that perspective. Yeah, as Elena Kagan put it, and I, I find myself constantly quoting Elena Kagan because she's always coming in with the zingers. But yeah, as she put it during the oral argument, she said, we're not like the, or these are not like the nine greatest experts on the internet, she said at one <laughs> point during the hearing. And um, yeah, I mean, for a court that bills itself, right, as very textualist and kind of constantly striving to get the law right based on the language in the statute, this was an argument that was dominated by like like po- like concerns about what would happen if the court ruled for the plaintiffs. And the plaintiffs in this case, you know, being the the one suing uh, YouTube owned by Google um, over these algorithms. And you heard from several justices. Kind of an underlying concern that 
Should they scale back Section 230? Maybe they could be destroying the internet as we know it and this this multi-billion dollar industry that has largely flourished in the absence of legal liability imposed by the U.S. federal court system. Um, you know, they, they like, you know, the district judges and court of appeals judges before them who were considering Section 230 seem to be taking a very hesitant approach um, and to finding these companies liable given you know the, the the broad success that these companies have enjoyed and the millions and millions of users that that use them every day i mean you had chief justice roberts at one point saying well what do we do about all these amicus briefs that say the internet would be sunk if we rule for the plaintiffs here i mean i'm paraphrasing a little bit uh justice kavanaugh warned of the potential economic dislocation I mentioned Kagan already. She was basically saying that these algorithms are endemic to today's internet. And there was a concern that, yeah, uh, essentially declaring that any time these platforms are using these algorithms that they are suddenly outside the bounds of the protections under Section 230 seem to be of deep concern. I'll give you just one example. The whole idea of the whole idea of search engines, the idea that, uh, you know, Google's search engine or Twitter's search engine, which is obviously not based on, you know, chronological uh, results of when certain posts were made, but are have like artificial intelligence systems baked into them to try and get the result that the user is actually searching for. They were concerned that a ruling for the plaintiffs here would suddenly expose everyday search engines to liability under any variety of causes of action because they're no longer covered by Section 230. I would recommend to all of our listeners that this is a great topic for the next time you're sitting around at a bar with your friends or when you're on a date, because you can really tell a lot about what people think about the world we live in by saying, hey, will it destroy the internet if (laughs) these giant behemoth companies have to face up to more legal liability? Or are they too big? And this is a new modern problem that wasn't foreseen by 230. You're really going to get a lot of people's personality on this one, which I think is probably also why we see those big screaming headlines. And there are a lot of people talking about this case. I know you mentioned textualism. I wanted to have just a quick little beat more about that because it is a bit unusual to see them struggle with it in a court that usually really loves a textualist argument. That's right. Um, so it was almost like a tale of two arguments where during the uh, presentation by Lisa Blatt, uh, Google's attorney in the case, you started to see uh, creep in to the case a little bit of pushback on just how broadly she was reading the text of the statute, in particular by Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, a justice whose you know, judicial philosophy is kind of still coming into view. But we know that you know she still pays considerable attention to not just the text, of the statute, but also kind of the context and the history behind it. And so she points out that Section 230 was largely enacted in the mid-90s as a way to kind of encourage or at least not disincentivize uh, internet platforms from scrubbing offensive content or moderating content on their sites. And she's basically asking, here, you're asking us to kind of, uh, you know, exculpate companies for actually actively promoting this offensive or in this case extremist content through these algorithms so she's saying that that seems to be going way broader than the text actually uh, allows for and you saw a little bit of sympathy for that from chief justice roberts as well um 
I would say Gorsuch in particular is kind of pushing back on that idea and seemed to suggest that the text could be fairly read in Google's favor. So I'm really interested to see, you know, just how a majority of the court does actually grapple with not just the kind of policy ramifications of whatever the ruling is, but how to properly read this law for not just this case, but perhaps cases in the future. Jimmy, I hate to put you on the spot, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Do you have any sense after listening to two days of this, where we're going to land? What's your gut telling you? I I think my gut's telling me that the tech companies, um, whether you're talking about Google, Twitter, or Facebook, will will prevail in these cases um, and escape liability um, under you know both the Anti-Terrorism Act and perhaps also Section 2. That's just my instinct. I have no, obviously, inside knowledge. But that was just based on the general tenor of several hours of oral arguments and the broad concerns that seem to be shared by a majority of the justices on the court about what would happen um, given, uh, you know, given uh, a, a victory for the plaintiffs in both cases. That said, you know, there is a lot of uh, wiggle room in terms of what how the court actually rules and in, in, in the, the language that it uses. And it could potentially affect, you know, future litigation with these internet companies. It, it, it might not be that suddenly, uh, you know, tw- Twitter and Facebook are going to be sued over every, you know, ISIS account that pops up on the service. But, you know, the the court could establish some guidelines for uh, or at least what where the where the sec, where immunity under section 230 ends. So I'll give you an example. Gorsuch um, during the Gonzalez v Google case was basically saying while he disagreed, you know, that algorithms should just basically automatically be considered to be outside the scope of the section. He was saying that, you know, some forms of artificial intelligence systems that are now being rolled out as we speak, like artifi- uh, like like these chatbots that can generate poetry or polemics was the example he used. Those are those are not sources of third-party content. Those are con- those are original forms of content generated by these companies themselves through these AI systems. So you know maybe he's been in his chamber uh, fiddling around with Chat GPT like the rest of us. But yeah, we all of, have. Yeah, right. He's kind of striking. He's kind of you know peeling back the curtain a little bit about maybe some of the the battles of internet immunity that are on the horizon. Jimmy, what a fascinating week for me to have been able to talk with you today. I really have loved getting into this. We're going to see a lot more to come. Thanks so much, Amber. You know we love having you. I hope you come back soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Additional reporting by Daniela Peratt. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term.